Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan, left the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell, him, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The, the devil led him up to the high place and showed him in, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all, all their authority and splendor. It has been given to them, and all I can give it to anyone. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, to lift you up in their, high, in their hands, so that you will not be, strike their, your foot against a stone. Jesus said, do not put your foot... No, hang on. Don't put the Lord, your God, to the test. When the devil had finished all the t his tempting, he left him until there was an opportune time. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that um, through this service that Andrew's going to provide in a couple minutes, um, that we get something from it today, a, uh, a life lesson, or we see something in ourselves, maybe a blind spot. Um, that is important and that we can either fix or um, try something differently. And um, please guide us through this time. I know some of us are going through a hard time right now. I don't know how hard it can be for some people. I get it pretty easily all the time. Um, and uh, I hope that you can provide help for all of them. May it be a, um, a fix in their life or just uh, comfort from your word. And um, um, in your name, amen. Thank you, sir. You can take that. So I want to open with asking just a couple questions. Uh, first question is this. Do you have a recurring temptation. A temptation with which uh, just seems to continually get, get the better of you. Or a temptation which if it's not getting the better of you, it just, it just often rears its ugly head. Uh, a temptation with which you often do battle. And I, I don't know what that temptation would be for you. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's, it's drunkenness, maybe it's laziness, maybe it's prayerlessness. I mean, there's just a huge list of, of varied temptations. But whatever that, whatever that temptation is, I, I, I'm asking you to do something this morning, and that is I, I want you to just kind of fix in your mind what that is. Just take a second, think about that, this temptation, this besetting temptation or battle or fight that's just often there in my life. Whatever that is, I want you to do that for two reasons. The first one is, is just really quick. The first reason why I want you to do that is because I want you to know that whatever that temptation is, God is able, 
to do far more abundantly than you can ask or think with that temptation. And that that temptation seems powerful. And that, that temptation uh, seems good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting, right? So whatever that temptation is and how powerful it is, how alluring it is, how satisfying it might seem to be, I want you to know that, that God is able and God is powerful and through him, whatever that temptation is, you can overcome it. And the, the second reason I want you to be thinking about that through, through this message and what that temptation is, is because I want you to directly apply what's being said this morning and, and, and last Sunday to that temptation, right? Let's, let's put our, our, our feet where our mouth is, right? If we're serious about temptation, whatever that battle is, whatever that fight is, whatever that struggle is, listen intently uh, to, to what we're talking about this morning to help you in that battle, to help you overcome it, and, and immediately start putting it into practice. Because remember from last week this wonderful news that whatever your temptation because of Christ our victor and our Savior, our Lord, who faced Satan in the wilderness and overcame him, that he sets the example. And how do we overcome temptation? The same way Jesus did. The same way Jesus did. He overcame temptation, not using his God card that we talked about last week, right? Pulling out the true master card with an infinity or eternal expiration date and, and eternity, eternal uh, money on it, right? Credit. He doesn't pull that out. He, he overcomes the temptations of, of Satan using the same resources that you and I have by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever that temptation is, and what, what you're hearing this morning as we walk through the text and see how Jesus overcomes temptation, start putting it into practice right away because you can overcome temptation the same way he did. He sets that example for us, and that's so encouraging. He doesn't do it as God. That would be, in some ways, discouraging, right? Well, he's God. Of course he's able to do that. But that's, that's not what the text presents. It presents that he overcomes it as a man. So two, two points this morning. How, how did Jesus overcome temptation? The two points are, one, he was living in God's word. And the second one was he was looking up in faith to God. But we're going to translate that for us. He's looking, and for us, we're going to look up to Christ and find our satisfaction in him. So walking through the text, point number one, how does Jesus overcome temptation? He's living in God's word. And as, as Gavin read the scriptures, hopefully you saw, or you've seen this in the past, or, or however that works, but hopefully you saw that Jesus disarms all the temptations of Satan with what? With Scripture, right? He quotes Scripture back to Satan. Jesus is, is starving. He's physically weak and exposed. And in my mind's eye, I, I picture Jesus, uh, I mean, it's been 40 days of not eating and drinking, right? So I picture Jesus uh, with his ribs poking out, probably. Uh, he's, again, he's exposed. His body is worn away. And so Satan comes with that first temptation uh, for Jesus to doubt the goodness of God. Uh, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If, if, if your father's so good and so loving and so kind and loves you so much, then why are you so hungry? 
right? That's, that's the temptation. He wants them to doubt the goodness of God. And the response of the Lord Jesus Christ is to quote Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and say, it is written, man shall not live by what? By bread alone. Next, Satan tempts Jesus to renounce his allegiance to the Father and, and bow down and, and worship him. Essentially, what, what Satan is offering to Jesus there is he's offering him the crown without the cross. He's offering him the easy way out. That, that look, if you follow me, if you bow down and worship me, he says to Christ, that, then you'll have all the fame and all the glory and all the power of all these nations. I'll, I'll give it all to you. So he's tempting Jesus to take the easy way out. And Jesus' response, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, saying, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The last temptation recorded in Luke 4 is that Satan tempts Jesus to test God. And this time Satan kind of fights fire with fire, right? He throws scripture at Christ and he he actually quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And remember the point from that is Satan uses scripture. A key point, just keep in your mind again, I, I, I want this fresh in your minds, is just because someone uses Scripture does not mean they are being biblical. And just because I'm up here reading Scripture doesn't mean I'm being biblical, right? The biblical encouragement in Acts 17 is be Bereans. Check the Scripture. See if what I'm saying is true and see if the way others are using it is, is true, right? Remember the first three rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. In fact, I recently heard someone say this. If you take the text out of context, all you have left is a con. That's pretty good. And that's often what happens. That's what, what, what Satan is doing here. He's ripping a text out of context, tempting Jesus to uh, take things into his own hands, to test, to test God, to presume upon his love, to presume upon his goodness, to, to act irresponsibly and expect God to, to bail them out. And Jesus' response to that is he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, saying, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, with, with every temptation that, that Satan offers up to Jesus, Jesus responds with a scriptural truth to overcome it and rebuke it. So let's just apply that principle. How do you overcome whatever that temptation is that you struggle with? And maybe it's more than one, but whatever it is, when that temptation comes, how do you overcome it? You must use God's word. You must live in God's word. So I just want to ask you this morning, is your Bible well-worn? How much are you in God's word? Is, is your Bible falling apart from so much use? And I don't want to hold this one up to show you because this is just the only one I use from preaching. It is, it's, not, it's not falling apart. Uh, but I promise you, I have, I have a few Bibles just laying around where even, even as you go through them, some of them are very yellowed from the oil on my skin from just constantly reflecting on them. But just how, how is your time in the Scriptures? In fact, I want to go a little bit deeper than that, and I want to ask you what might sound like a, a crazy question, but, but how is your bibliology? 
And by bibliology, I don't just mean the end matter on research papers that you maybe submit for school, right, that you hate doing, where you have to, like, uh, reference them properly, and if you don't do all that, you get marked down on your paper, and all that fun stuff. No, not, not that. By bibliology, I mean your doctrine of Scripture. Bibliology is the doctrine of Scripture. And before you, you shut me off for using such a crazy, boring word like, like bibliology, I want you to hear and understand how unbelievably important your bibliology is. And you have a bibliology. We all have a bibliology. You have a doctrine of the Scriptures, something you think or believe about the Scriptures. And hear this, as your bibliology goes, so goes your Christianity. And as your bibliology goes, so goes your life in Christ. And let me illustrate that a few ways. If, if you think the Bible is nothing more than just a bunch of stories and myths and fables, then that's going to impact the way you live your life. Yes? Or if you think the Bible is outdated and irrelevant book that has no bearing on today, you will live accordingly. If you think the Bible is the very Word of God, you will live differently. The way you view and think about the Bible determines how your life goes. So how is your bibliology? What is your view of the Scriptures? Better yet, what was or is Jesus' view of the Bible? What was his Bibliology, And I'm raising all of that because we see his bibliology in the way he responds to Satan's temptations. And there's a lot we could say here, but I have three thoughts of what Jesus believes about the Bible to be true. And I just want to challenge you, if, if this is Jesus' view of the Bible, this should be all of our views of the Bible, yes? Because he was God, or the Scriptures, in the flesh. He's Logos. So Jesus believed... The Bible was the supreme authority. I think we would all agree that our civilization is in the midst of a severe authority crisis. Every authority you can imagine is being questioned and challenged. Everyone wants to live their own lives. Everyone wants to make up their own rules, their own morality. They want to steer through a course of life that they determine and they, they design. It's of their own choosing. For most people, their desires or their experience is their authority. What about for Jesus? For him, Scripture was the authority. Why do I say that? Because all three times he's tempted, he says... It is written. It is written. What is he saying? What does he mean when he says that? He's saying, this is my authority. The Bible has spoken. I live or die on that. This is my foundation. This is my tower. This, 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 is, this is the authority of my life. That the Bible is not offering up some nice suggestions. The Bible is not offering up some advice on how to try and live your life. The Bible is the supreme authority by which every other so-called authority must be tested. The Bible is the supreme authority by which your every thought needs to be examined. Your every word, uh, your every feeling, your every desire should be judged and discerned and sifted by this. That's what is meant by it is 
written. From how you live the Christian life to doctrines we must believe to how the church should order itself, the Word of God is the ultimate, the sola scriptura, the ultimate authority. The Bible is the last word on how you and I must live. It is the last word on matters of truth. And the Bible has authority over your beliefs and over your actions. And this is the pathway to blessing when you submit to the authority of God's word. I think of the, the disciples who were out all night fishing, right? And what do they catch? Nothing, right? It's discouraging, <laughs> especially when your livelihood depends on that. Out all night fishing, they catch nothing, and Jesus shows up and tells them, put out into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. And Peter, you never know what he's going to say, and he has a, a great response. His response to Jesus' command, his authority, his words, go out, put down the nets. Peter responds, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will lay down the nets. That's sola scriptura. That's the authority of the scriptures. Master, we've been out working all night. We've been doing this all night. We're tired. We're fatigued. We're beat up. We, we don't want to do this anymore. But because you have said to go and do that, we're going to go do that. Because the scriptures are the supreme authority. Because you say so, I will do it. Ask yourself, is the Bible your authority in all matters of life. Jesus also believed the Bible was trustworthy. Again, Satan wanted Jesus uh, to test God. He wanted Jesus to doubt God's goodness. He wanted Jesus to, to bow down and wor worship him. And Jesus overcame those web of lies by relying upon the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. The scripture so filled his mind that when Satan threw his lies at Jesus, he was able to see immediately through the deception. Jesus believed the scriptures. He relied upon the scriptures. It's very interesting. If you, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the four gospels, it's over 90 times Jesus quotes the Old Testament. 90 times. Jesus knew the scriptures. The scriptures had center stage in his word and life and ministry. The word was his foundation. Elsewhere, Jesus tells us, I love this verse in Matthew 5, that even if heaven and earth were to pass away, God's word remains forever. Forever settled in heaven. How's that for reliability? Just some encouragement with that. Because the Bible is trustworthy, because the Bible is reliable, that means we have a reliable basis for when you face tough decisions. You ever face hard, tough decisions? You've got to think through it and not sure what to do. The Bible is reliable. That, that's why, for one, we have biblical counseling, and, and we have that tagline of, of the biblical solutions for all problems of life. For every and every situation you're in, there are biblical solutions. There's biblical wisdom. The Bible is a reliable source for making moral judgments. Also, because God's word doesn't change, because God's word is reliable and speaks the truth, we have really good reason 
to say that some things are wrong, right? And some things are right. Some things are good. Some things are evil. God's word is forever settled in heaven. We, we can breathe easily. We don't have to ask, you know, is, is abortion murder or is, is racism wrong or, or some of the things that our, our society in which we live are wrestling with. We, we don't have to wrestle and wonder about how many genders there are, yes? Why? Because the Bible has spoken, it's our authority, and it is reliable. It is trustworthy. We don't have to ask and wonder, does my life have purpose? Yes, your life has purpose, because the Bible has spoken that it does. You were made in his image to reflect him and glorify him and honor him. Public opinion doesn't change God's word. I like to say fairly often that truth is not a democracy. Truth is not something we vote on. God's word has spoken, that settles it. Sometimes we want to throw in that middle phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Listen, whether you believe it or not, God said it and that settles it. <laughs> right? The word of God is reliable and the same is true for your salvation. You don't have to wonder how to be saved or if you can be saved. The Bible has spoken Gloriously so, it has spoken, wondrously so, graciously so, that if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord and believes in their hearts, they will be saved. And the Bible has gloriously spoken that there is only one way of salvation, and it's through and in uh, the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to bear the penalty for my sin and for yours and three days later rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and one day returning to make all things right. We don't have to wonder if we can be saved. We don't have to wonder about salvation. Jesus saves anyone and everyone who comes to him in humble faith and repentance, trusting in him alone for salvation and forgiveness of sin. That truth hasn't changed. That truth never will. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? So can you say this morning, I will rely upon what God has said. I will not doubt it. I will not question it. The third thing that we see from Jesus, his bibliology, is he believed the Bible was necessary. And this, this, this is very powerful and convicting for me. But again, look at verse 4. Jesus answers it and, and says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And that's a partial quote of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 in its entirety says this, that God, this is Moses speaking to Israel, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Here's why. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So that's, that's staggering for me to read and think about. It, it simultaneously convicts and encourages me because Jesus is saying that his real food, that what actually sustains him is not the physical bread, but what? The word of God. 
that that's what sustained him, that even in extreme hunger, right, his ribs are probably poking out, he's 40 days not eating, extreme hunger, Jesus prioritizes spiritual food over physical. Even as my body wastes away, Jesus says, my deepest need is not bread, it's the word of God. Man, that's powerful. Scripture was vital for his sustenance. God's word was indispensable to him. And, and notice again from that, that quotation in Deuteronomy 8.3 that it says, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God's, comes from the mouth of the Lord. Every word. Not just, I don't know, what's your favorite part of the Bible? The epistles, Genesis, why is it never the minor prophets like Zechariah or Habakkuk, Micah, Amos? We live by all of God's word. Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. It's all inspired. It's all profitable. We need to be devouring all of God's word. The Psalms, yes. The Proverbs, yes. Numbers, Leviticus, yes. All of it. We live by every word. When you come to those parts of the Bible that make you uncomfortable, remember that the Bible is profitable for your correction. I like to remind myself of this. If, if God really is God and the Bible is God's word, I should expect when I read God's word for it to correct me for it to convict me. In fact, I like to say this sometimes, if, if you're always reading God's word and you never disagree with it, there's probably something wrong there. Meaning, it should be challenging the way you think because there is sin in your life. There's sin in my life. There's sin in your life. And when you come to God's word, it should be challenging you. It should be convicting you. Not necessarily every time, but it should be happening. If it's not happening, something's wrong there. So how does your bibliology measure up to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the Bible the supreme authority in your life? Is the Bible that which you find trustworthy? Is the Bible uh, that upon which you see to be necessary? So brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever that temptation is, if you're going to overcome that temptation, you need to be in the Scriptures. Psalms 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. What does it mean to store up God's word in your heart? It means to be memorizing it and meditating on it reading it day and night. If you're serious about fighting the good fight against temptation, if you plan to overcome the lures of the enemy who wants to devour you, you have to be in the Word. Devour it. Chew on it daily. Plan a, a regular time and place in your daily schedule. If you don't have that, you need that. A regular time and place in your schedule, your daily schedule to be, this is your time with God to read and to pray and to think and to meditate. 
I also would strongly encourage you, in whatever your system is, to have a system for summarizing and remembering what you read. So that three hours later when someone asks you, hey, what you read in God's Word this morning, your mind just doesn't go dead. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Well, I, I know I read it, but man, what did I read? So we need a system in place to remember what you learn, and therefore you can apply it. In fact, I, I have a challenge for you this morning. I, I, don't, I don't know your daily reading habits. I don't know if you're in a daily reading habit. If you're not in a daily reading habit, this is my challenge for you. This is my encouragement to you. It's called the 5-15-5 plan. The 5-15-5 plan is simply this, that you'll spend 15 minutes a day, five days for five weeks in God's Word to see what God does in your life. The 5-15-5, right? 15 minutes for five days out of the week for five weeks to see what God does in your life. Five minutes reading a portion of the Bible, five minutes praying over what you just read, and five minutes writing down a few thoughts about how you need to, to change because of what you just read. I'm trying to keep that really simple to encourage all of us to be in God's Word. If you just think about it this way, how well do you do when you don't eat? Probably not very good, huh? If you miss a meal or two, how well do you do? And if you miss a meal or two, are you constantly thinking about food? We need food. Without food, quite frankly, we, we die Jesus sets that example of how much more we need God's Word. I'm going to say it to you this way, and I say it to you this way with all the love in the world, but a day without reading the Bible is a wasted day. A day without reading the Bible is a wasted day, and it's like going into battle without any weaponry or armor. A day without reading the Bible is a wasted day. The Bible reveals God's glory. It reveals his righteousness, his love, his kindness, his tenderheartedness, his, his, his holiness. The, the Bible strengthens you, and it, it encourages you. It recharges or revives your soul. It strengthens you to love the unlovable, to be patient under immense stress, to be kind in the face of cruelty. The Bible gives you wisdom to navigate the world. It gives wisdom and it speaks wisdom into the confusion of this world. The, the Bible helps you grow in Christlikeness. The Bible's like a chisel that slowly chips away at the sin in our lives and shapes us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches us that the Bible's like a foundation that when you build your life on it, the storms of life come and you don't get swept away. The Bible protects you. Sin and temptation is so destructive, right? Sin destroys families. It splits families. It ruins lives. It sabotages churches. But Scripture helps you see through the deception of sin. Scripture puts guardrails in your life so you don't drive over the cliff and crash and burn. Well, praise God, if you do drive over the cliff and crash and burn, the Word of God can restore you. So imagine if it can restore you after you crash and burn. Imagine how great it is to have it set up as guardrails in your life so you don't crash and burn. 
The Bible is such a staggering privilege. Let us then read it more diligently than ever before. A day without the Bible is a wasted day. In the words of Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you, what? Richly. Richly. That's the first step this morning in overcoming temptation. Devour God's word. Live in God's word. Number two, look to Jesus. In the midst of temptation, look to Jesus. Remember that Jesus is the second Adam. He is the obedient son, the perfect Adam who obeys the father. The first Adam failed miserably. Israel, God's son, fails miserably in the wilderness. Jesus doesn't fail. He walks right into, I love it, into the lion's den to face Satan. He goes toe to toe, eyeball to eyeball with Satan. He, he smelled his breath. Why did he do that? He did that for you and for me. Jesus was our representative. You were in him when he was there. You were on his heart. You were on his mind. You had already been given to him by the Father, and Jesus was loving you during those 40 days. It was on your behalf that he resisted Satan, and Jesus proved stronger. Amen? Jesus proved the victor. He did it for you and for me. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So please hear this this morning, that Jesus sympathizes with your trouble. He sympathizes with your weakness. What does sympathize mean? It means to co-suffer. Jesus co-suffers with us. It is entering into the experience of another. Jesus isn't out of touch with reality. His heart beats with his children. His affections yearn toward us, his children. Not only did Jesus redeem you, not only does he represent you, but he relates with you, he gets you, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows uh, the seductive whisper of temptation. And as our great high priest, Jesus remembers the stinking breath of the devil. He knows it. He knows the menacing power of temptation what does that mean? That means when you are being tempted. I don't, I don't know how you kind of picture Jesus in the midst of temptation, but, but what this means in temptation is when you're in the midst of it, Jesus is not up there rolling his eyes at you. Do you think that sometimes? And he's not up there like impatiently doing this. You know, like, come on, buddy. This again. This is the problem again. You're struggling with this again. Seriously? He's not doing that. He's not impatient with your present pace of spiritual growth. Jesus, right now, and in the midst of your temptation, is inviting you to bring it all to me. Right? That's why he's inviting you in that verse, right? We have a high priest who sympathizes with us. He knows what you need. He, he knows what you're going through. He knows how you can overcome. There's, there's no Christian in the world that can say, nobody understands me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Yes, there is. Jesus. Jesus. 
He knows what you're going through. Satan wants you to think that you're all alone. He wants you to think you're isolated and helpless, but, but Jesus understands. He's, he's gone through it. He's gone through it a million times worse. So go to him. Look to him. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence, right? Confidence draw near to the throne of grace, not the throne of sternness or the, the throne of lightning bolts, right? You again? Seriously? No, the throne of what? Grace. Come to him with confidence, like, like a, a young boy or child runs to their mom or dad when they have a little boo-boo on their knee, right? And they run crying and arms out, and mom and dad embraces them, right? Grace and love, compassion, co-suffering. Why do we do that? Hebrews 4.16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So I want to say it this way. Jesus knows what you need in the midst of, of temptation. And guess what it is you need? Him. You need him. And he, he gives you himself. Uh, F.B. Meyer uh, puts it this way. He says it very well. He says, there is only one way by which the tempter can be met. He laughs at our good, resolu good resolutions. He ridicules the pledges with which we fortify ourselves. Satan fears only one. He who in the hour of greatest weakness defeated him and who has now been raised far above all principalities and powers to deliver frail and tempted souls like us. Christ conquered the prince of this world in the days of his flesh. And I love what he says here. And Jesus is prepared to do so much again for each one of us as we seek his aid. Jesus walked into the wilderness. He overcame temptation, and he will do it for you. He's ready to do that for you if you will run to him in the midst of temptation. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredible? Do you do that when you're tempted? Like I said last week, I think lots of times when we're tempted, we just kind of like stay there or stand there and, and don't know what to do. Well, here's two things, right? Run to God's word and run to Jesus. He co-suffers. He loves you. You'll find grace. You'll find mercy to overcome in the hour of need and trial and temptation. That's our Savior. You're not alone. He's with you. And I want to say this too, that whatever the temptation, if you really want to rip the heart out of that temptation and overcome that temptation, then you need to recognize that whatever that temptation is offering you, however satisfying it might seem, whatever joy it might be offering you, that in Jesus, this is so awesome, in Jesus you will find superior satisfaction. Whatever satisfaction that temptation is offering you, if you want to rip the heart out of that temptation, preach to yourself, remind to yourself that Jesus offers a superior satisfaction. He offers a superior joy, a superior security, superior fulfillment. Jesus is the provision. He is the joy. He is the satisfaction. You will gain the victory when you look to Jesus and when you realize and live and glory and rejoice in this. Jesus is better. Amen? He's better. He's better. 
This is what uh, Thomas Chalmers from years ago called the expulsive power of a new affection. Essentially, the, the idea is this, that the most effective way to kill sin is by replacing it with a superior pleasure. How will your heart be set free from the love of the world? How will your heart be set free from the seductions and flirtations of temptation? It is only when you see that lasting and fulfilling pleasure is found in Jesus, that Jesus is better than anything that temptation is offering you. Sin has this magnetic power that attracts us. Unless your heart is gripped by a greater power, you remain powerless to change. You can't change by trying harder or making resolutions, as good as those things can be. There must be a new and better power introduced. And that's the glory and the wonder and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you're at work, you've been working really, really hard, putting in overtime, uh, just, just doing the best that you can do at work, being, being a good employee, uh, working, working mightily as unto the Lord as you're supposed to, to and you're, you're hoping to get a promotion. <clears throat> but as sometimes happens, you don't get it, someone else does. To make matters worse, the, the person who does get the promotion it's someone who, I mean, in your opinion and the opinion of everyone else, man, why did that person get the promotion, right? That guy's always late. He's lazy. He just does what he does. He works hard when the boss shows up and the boss disappears, you know? He's, he's not doing anything. So you start to get what? Bitter, right? I mean, this stuff never happens, right? Start to get bitter. Start to get upset about it. You're certainly not happy about any of this, but imagine just an hour later, there's a windfall, and credited to your account is $500 million. What happens to your bitterness or anger about the guy who got the promotion over you. It's gone. Why? Because $500 million is way better than that promotion. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. And now maybe we need to do some counseling about the love of money. <laughs> but still, I hope that helps you see a greater affection or power when that grips your heart, the lesser things, you're not attracted to them anymore. It's, it's like if you just ate a big, I don't know, 8-ounce, 16-ounce New York strip steak wrapped in bacon, <laughs> a side of asparagus so it's a little more healthy, and someone comes up to you and offers you a plate full of breadcrumbs. You want the breadcrumbs? No, why? Because you're satisfied. You're satisfied, right? That's the expulsive power of a new affection. That's the secret, and it's not a secret. Being so filled, 
so satisfied in my Lord and my Savior that sin loses its attractiveness. That's what I mean by look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who overcame the temptation and look to Jesus who offers you something infinitely more than what sin has to offer. Because sin offers you pleasure, but it leads to pain. Sin offers you life, it leads to death. Sin offers you heaven, it leads to hell and ruin and destruction and misery forever. Jesus offers you life and life abundance. This is why James 1.14 says, We are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Temptation deceives us. It, it entices us into thinking it's something good, and it has power over us because it, it appeals to our desires, and we begin to treat those desires like mini-messiahs, and we think they'll make us feel better or escape or pleasure or, or feel safe. But no, the, the answer is Jesus. He's the only remedy, the only cure. Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is better than sin. Yes, the pleasure of sin is real, but pleasing Jesus is so much sweeter. Do you know this Jesus? Is there anyone here this morning you don't know this Jesus? Man, I want you to know him. I want you to be filled with the life-giving goodness and forgiveness and righteousness and satisfaction and hope that is found in him and him alone. And maybe as the word of God has gone forth this morning, the spirit is, is working in your heart to help you see just how empty and vain this world is. You're seeing that uh, everything you're looking for for satisfaction, it's like, it's like chasing the wind and your hearts are like these black holes of discontent. Is that you? Our hearts become like these, 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 these needy little things screaming, I need more, I want more, right? No matter how much you feed it, I need more, I want more. Dis dissatisfaction is at the heart of every sin, right? Just think about that. Why, why do people abuse drugs and alcohol? Why, why do people mindlessly binge uh, ridiculous amounts of, of Netflix or, or social media and TV, uh, so, you know, endlessly scrolling on social media? Why do people steal? Why, why do we do what we do? It's because we're dissatisfied. We're dissatisfied. If I could have that relationship, I'd be so happy. If I could have that job, I would be so happy. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, saying, no, those are lies. Happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment found by forgiveness of sins and righteousness. It's found in Christ and Christ alone. And he freely offers himself to you. You don't earn it. It's a gift by faith. Jesus satisfies. He says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amazing words of invitation. And those aren't just unbelievers. Those are believers. Are you going to believe that in, in, in the heart of the moment, in the midst of the temptation? Jesus is saying, come to me. I'm better than that. I'm more satisfying than that. They'll rip the heart out of temptation. Treasure Jesus. Seek Jesus. Find your all in Jesus. So that's how we do battle with temptation. 
We tied into last week, right? Four, I hope, memorable and simple truths that are life-changing in the midst of temptation. Remember from last week, number one, you need to have a heightened awareness of sin, right? Know where you're susceptible. Know where you're weak. Maybe circumstantially, maybe personality-wise, but you have a heightened awareness to sin. You're not surprised by temptation. You know you're going to be tempted, and you're aware of where you're susceptible. Number two from last week, you're walking in the Spirit. You're living in the Spirit. Why has the Spirit taken up residence within you? To kill, right? To kill sin. To mortify. How many of you used that word this last week? You know, just, just for status, right? Mortification, right? Just to, people would be like, what? <laughs> Not mortify because I'm embarrassed or ashamed, but mortifying, killing sin. Be killing sin or sin will be what? Killing you. Then we see from this morning, you need to be daily in God's word, hungering after his word, devouring God's word, reading it as much as you can, And then lastly, you're looking to Jesus. Your eyes are full of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're preaching to yourself, you're reminding yourself as much as you need to, Jesus is better. There's more satisfaction in Jesus. And by the way, that satisfaction might not be immediate. It might be future. But Jesus is better.